Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. You may be seated. This is reading of God's word. If you talk to most people in our society, you will find that when it comes to spirituality, they're very open to it. The question really is, what is spirituality? Because the yoga instructor has a very different view of spirituality than, say, the Roman Catholic who lights candles and prays for the intervention of St. Christopher uh, when they slip money into the box praying for loved ones. Or if you were to go to Haight-Ashbury and you were to speak to the store owner who has a number of different trinkets and different smells inside, that person has a very different view of spirituality as well. Perhaps you have experienced as a family or individually or know someone where you go inside a house and in the middle of the night, there's creaking noises in the attic and maybe a rocking chair going back and forth. Now that's a spirituality too. And uh, the paranormal, thinking of and considering such things. So spirituality is a very commonplace idea and it's not simply Christians who use that word. But when we perhaps think of spirituality, even in a Christian context, there is this mystical, pietistical idea of spirituality, that to be a spiritual person is to speak in tongues, to prophesy, to heal, to attend a service where there's a lot of frenetic activity. And that's sort of our understanding of spirituality. And so for those of us who are a little bit more um, stayed in their faith, tends to be a lot more skeptical of spirituality, that word. But spirituality is not a bad word. In fact, it's a biblical word. And until we understand that there is a distinction between gospel spirituality and almost a paganistic view of spirituality, gospel spirituality has the idea that the Holy Spirit, as we've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit and that the idea the Holy Spirit indwells you by his presence and therefore exhibits fruit in your life. And that person is truly a spiritual person. That's very different than a works-based spirituality, where it is dependent on your efforts to appease spirits, maybe spiritual disciplines, and the discipline itself is what makes you more or less spiritual, or some sort of spiritual energy or pietism, aura. All of this we think of when we think of the idea of spiritual or unspiritual. But all we have to do is look at Paul's words here in Galatians chapter six. And we see in verse one that he speaks of you who are spiritual. So for Paul, really to be a spiritual person is defined not by what you do, because Paul doesn't say you who do does spiritual things, 
but rather you who are spiritual. It's who you are. It's your identity. And it flows from you, the, the work of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. This person understands the power, as we understood last week, from, of gospel community by keeping in step with the Spirit. And this person understands the power of personal growth in God's word, in the ordinary, in the plain, the, in prayer, in faithfulness. So for these next two weeks, I'd like to look at four different marks of gospel spirituality. The first two we'll cover this week, which is restores one another in verse one. And the second, this spiritual person, this gospel spiritual person bears one another according to verse two. So let's look at this first mark of restoring one another according to verse one. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Here we see gospel spirituality has a few assumptions. First, it assumes we are family. Look at the first word, brothers, or brothers and sisters. No family is perfect, though they are family. Family hurts one another. Family disappoints one another. Family lets one another down, sometimes so deeply. And so if you have parents or children or siblings, um, they will let you down, but they are family. And family doesn't give up on one another when we sin against one another. We press on despite, in fact, sinning against one another. And as God's people, Paul's saying, we are family. It's not just that your biological family is family. You have a spiritual family. And we, according to Paul, do not throw this word around lightly. When Paul calls them brothers, he knows they will be there for him. They're going to be there at his deepest hour of need. And he doesn't dismiss that idea. In fact, he embraces the idea of being a family. Brothers and sisters also helps us to remember why and how we became brothers and sisters. Because in this family, we aren't born into the family. Again, we don't share physical, biological, genetic DNA. We have instead been adopted into this family. And that adoption didn't come free. It came at a price. And that price had the high cost of God's own son and his blood being shed so that we can be adopted and welcomed into his family. Now, I know when we think of our biological family, you might have heard the cliche, blood is thicker than water. And you know that what that means is that ultimately, the idea is your family, your biological family, you can count on more than anyone else. And no matter how close a friendship is, they're still not family. So it it has that idea that we rely on physical families. And sometimes it's the idea that your physical family ultimately is more dependable, is going to be there for you more than the church. But that's exactly the opposite of what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that Jesus' blood is infinitely thicker than your biological family's blood. And it should be. Tragically, it isn't so often, but it should be. It must be that when we are welcomed and adopted into this family, that we are 
supposed to be there even closer than a biological family, that we are supposed to show one another grace and kindness and mercy. And just like when you even do things that are wrong, hurtful, disappointing to your biological family, they don't just simply cut you off. So too, the church is supposed to be there when it is most difficult, most painful. Also, families, if you look at this assumption, families sin against one another. Let's again look at this text. If anyone is caught in any transgression, if anyone is caught in any transgression, it's one thing to sin against one another, to say a hurtful word, to get angry at one another, but it is another thing to be caught in the act of it. Have you ever gossiped about someone or spoken ill of someone and you got caught in doing so? Maybe someone heard about it, confronted you and said, I heard you said this about me. Has that ever happened to you? If you've lived long enough, that's, that probably has happened to you once, at least in your life. You've been caught in some sort of sin. How do you feel at that moment? Usually you feel embarrassed. And you know what our first instinct is? Is to be defensive. And maybe it's to lie and say, no, I didn't do it. When in reality we did. And we know we did. And we've been caught. And so we don't want to own up to it. Our instinct is to say, I didn't do it. Because we have to save our face. We have to make sure that we look okay. See, it's, it's the reality of sin that when we are caught in the act, it is unnerving. It is disturbing to our soul. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. And we feel bad also because we have done that wrong against that person. Well, if you have ever caught someone in this sin or any sin, Paul has a word for you and for me. He says, restore them, be gracious to them, be kind to them. When you catch someone in a lie, when you catch someone maybe stealing something you have, when you catch someone looking at something lustfully and you have placed your hope and trust in that person, Paul says, we should restore them. We should forgive them. We should show them mercy and kindness. We should do so because we ourselves have been caught even though maybe no one ever catches you. But one thing is for sure, our Lord has caught you in sin many times. And there is no escaping the fact that he has caught you red-handed. And if we were to be before him and he laid, and he will lay out everything of all that he has done, who could stand, as the psalmist says, if you should mark our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand against that? that pressure. Now, do you see here why spirituality then cannot be an emotion or a feeling of holiness? Because who feels spiritually good when you catch someone in the act or you're caught in the act of sin? You know, there is no spiritual peace, no high that feels good when you're caught in the act. And when you catch somebody in the act of sin against you, the last thing you feel is love towards them. You usually instead feel quite the opposite. You want to condemn them. You want to punish them. You want to exact your vengeance on them. You want to make them feel the pain that you felt by doing that act against you in the first place. So there is no way that 
this false notion of spirituality. I'm sorry to say, but tongue speaking and healing won't help at that moment. You know, putting coins into a box or doing yoga doesn't help you at that moment. The idea of it is that the only hope we have is if we truly understand that our personal righteousness is not founded on whether someone has done something wrong against us or not. We always look to Christ and recognize that whatever we have been sinned against, whatever that person has done against me, multifold have I done that against the Lord. And only that realization, a truth, a, a solid rock truth that is embedded, anchored into your soul, is what is going to help you to be able to forgive, show mercy, show grace, that realization. That's at the cross. There's a reason why we have a cross before us, even physically. I mean, we just, I just want you to always remember that we cannot be pointing fingers or throwing stones at people when there's a cross before us because the cross always shows us, I deserve those stones. I deserve those fingers pointed towards me. I am the least righteous. And so when we see the cross, it just shines this bright light of God's holiness and our sinfulness so great that then we're able to show mercy to other people. It's that realization that he instills within us then what Paul describes, and if you look at that verse, a spirit of gentleness. Now, gentleness is something that is powerful. We spoke about it just a few weeks ago. And it's important to understand that gentleness does not come from weakness. It always comes from power, true biblical gentleness. Christ's gentleness is powerful. I want to use a metaphor that uh, pastor author Phil Riken uses to describe our response to others' sins against us. And he describes it like a medical student who sees a compound fracture. A compound fracture, for those of you who don't know, it's when you break your bone and the bone splinters and sticks out of your skin and it looks disgusting, right? And you get the heebie-jeebies. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. You don't want to. But imagine this medical student. They are so disgusted by looking at this patient with this obvious diagnosis of a compound fracture that they want nothing to do with the patient because it disgusts them so much. And sometimes such a student could yell at the person and say, what did you, why did you do that? How did you fall so stupidly so that you would get a compound fracture to do that? You know, that's sort of what it's like for so many of us when we, we see people who are broken in their sin, when there's literally the spiritual compound fracture that has taken place in their life. And our first instinct is to say, how could you do that? Or to be disgusted by it. But I really appreciate what Phil Riken says here. He says, when Christians are caught in sin, they do not need isolation or amputation. They need restoration. The proper thing to do is to help them confess their sins and find forgiveness in Christ, and then to welcome them back into the fellowship of the church. The proper thing to do. Are we a place where people can do disgusting sins and yet when they confess their sins and repent, that they can be restored and brought back to fellowship. If we are not, then one, we are not a church of Christ. We do not understand the gospel. 
We think we are sinless and we have no place in the kingdom of heaven. A church, a family church, family adopted in Christ is one we are, dare I say, safe enough to sin and actually be forgiven of that sin. If I hold over that sin against the person, say, how dare you do that to me? And then they repent and confess and they change and we still say, well, I remember it and continue to hold that over that person. We have no gospel. We don't have Christ, not in the church, not in our life. It takes gospel spirituality to want to restore people from their sin. My friends, stay in a church long enough and you will find two things. You will be caught in sin and you will catch people in sin. Both of those things will happen. If we're never caught in sin, maybe it's because we've never been honest with people or we, we don't want to be known that way because we want to put on a mask of perfection. Anyone who has been with me long enough knows you will catch me in sin and anger and impatience and frustration and more. It, it's, it's bound to happen the longer we go. And so if the instinct is disgust and that's all we think about, if you stay long enough, you will be caught in sin and you will catch others. Oh, but I hope that gospel spirituality press in and the flow of gospel spirituality is gentleness, restoration with gentleness. Uh, for those of you who didn't get a chance to get that free book that we're given by Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly, um, a few weeks ago. It's still out there, and you're welcome to take it. It's for free. It's a great book, actually. And he's a, he's a pastor and theologian, and he, he describes Jesus' gentleness with us this way. Given the depth of our sinfulness, the fact that Jesus has not yet cast us off proves that his deepest impulse and delight is patient gentleness. The fact that you and I are not in hell shows that he is gentle. And by the way, Jesus is gentle because he is powerful. You know, there, when you're in a position of authority, you have two paths. One is authority leading to uh, tyranny and to dictatorship, right? The other is authority leading to gentleness. Both flows its power from that authority. And so the gentle person has the ability, and I'm, I'm speaking specifically about biblical gentleness, not the way that, again, you might think of as gentle personality, but really power with a gentle hand and kindness and compassion to say, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to show grace. And that takes strength, takes power and authority. And that's who Jesus is. He had the power to cast us into hell. But because of God's great love for us, he gave his own son. So in that authority and power, he approaches us with gentleness. I think of last night I was at a dinner and um, we're at a restaurant. And there was this boy, young older boy. He was actually throwing a tantrum. And he was flailing his arms and his legs. And you can imagine that tantrum. And his dad Obviously, he couldn't pick him up because his arms and legs were gangly and all over the place, and so he had to take him outside. And 
when when a child is doing that and he's bigger, it's very hard to hold that child in your arms. But that's exactly what we are like when we sin against the Lord. We flail our arms with independence and rebellion against God and say, I refuse you. And God just takes his arms and he grabs us and he holds us tight. It takes strength to do that, power, to take your rebellion and to constrain it and restrain it and to say, I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go that dangerous road that will bring you down that path. I'm going to hold you. That is gentleness, the strength of gentleness. So that's one mark of gospel spirituality is that we are always looking to restore because we've been restored. Second is that we bear one another, verse two. It's another mark of gospel spirituality. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Do you remember Jesus' promise to all believers in Matthew eleven twenty through 30? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus promises us that when we follow him, his burden is light. But you might be wondering, how is Jesus' burden light? It often so often seems that when I follow Jesus, my burden seems heavier, not lighter. How can this be? Many of you know that uh, in the past couple of weeks that the Taliban has overrun Afghanistan, tragically. And one of the things that you do not hear in the secular news is that the church, Christians in Afghanistan, are either suffering right now or are preparing for intense persecution and suffering. Please pray for the church in Afghanistan. But surely their pastors who are following Jesus do not consider Jesus' burdens light, right? To follow Jesus seems like a really heavy burden, not a light burden, especially in that context and in that circumstance. So what does Jesus mean when he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light? First, it means that the ultimate burden of sin and death has been done away with by Christ at the cross forever and ever. That's gospel spirituality. And that is by far, if you were to talk to any Christian who bears the weight of the burden of persecution, they consider the light burden comparatively the light eternal burden comparatively to the heavy burden of this world. And again, infinity next to even a hundred years of living, which is a very old life, hundred years is still but a drop in the ocean of, of years and time. So what the Lord has done is when he has saved us, he has rescued us forever and ever. And he's carrying the burden of our sin and rebellion forever and ever eternally. So we have to keep that in mind. So therefore, the psalmist in Psalm 118 says this, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The psalmist knows that when they trust, when he trusts in Jesus, he really is able to experience even terrible things from people and still experience light burden. It is possible. But secondly, and this is where verse two really comes into play, Jesus uses the means of the church to bear one another's burdens. 
We are to be Jesus's hands and feet to help one another to bear burdens together. I mean, right now, for example, to go back to Afghanistan, the Taliban are literally chasing young Christian girls down uh, and young women in Afghanistan, ripping them out of their homes and selling them as child brides to Muslim men. This is happening at this current moment. If you are a pastor, even more so, but especially they're targeting Christian girls and women. And so take that for a moment and think about that. Imagine the government coming into your house and taking your daughters and you have no recourse and selling them away to whatever purpose that they decide. That's what's happening in one country. And as Christians, one way we bear one another's burdens is we bear it through prayer. Please do not underestimate the power of bearing burdens through prayer. Far too often we think of prayer as, oh, I'm gonna pray for you, and then we never pray for the person. As though that's some sort of Christian, nice Christian greeting card greeting. I'm gonna pray for you, we never pray. We don't bear. You see, we have to have the empathy of prayer. When you say, I'm gonna pray for you, it means I understand, I'm going to do all that I can to appreciate and to empathize what you're going through. So when you are praying for these pastors and these Christians in Afghanistan, imagine someone coming into your home and doing the same thing. What would you feel? How would you feel helpless? injustice, anger, sadness, grieving, all of that. And so in our prayers, we pray for people like that. We pray for the church in Afghanistan. Or we, we lift up and bear burdens together. You know, imagine there's a person carrying um, a 100-pound sack of something, and they're, they have it on their shoulder. And so it's very heavy, and so their knees are buckling. And you go, and you go right behind them, and you take, you carry it with them. And suddenly the weight is distributed. And so therefore, even though it's still heavy, but it's not heavy at all. But you who never had a burden suddenly take on the burden of that person and you feel the weight. It can be done together. Suddenly you who had nothing feel something and you work together to ease one another's burdens. Notice that there is a cost to bearing burdens. It's hard. It's sacrificial. It costs sometimes money, sometimes time, your energy, your efforts. And frankly, if you're like me, you're self-centered. You like your own time, your own resources, and it's always hard to be able to lift burdens for somebody else, especially when you've come home from work, you've kicked back and relaxing, and then you get a call and say, can you come over and help me? Whatever the situation. Isn't our instinct to be thinking, I don't want to do that. I like where I'm at right now. There's a, there's a cost to carrying other burdens together. But until we really grasp that and know that, we'll never understand what it means for Jesus to carry our burden. Another thing is that Jesus doesn't just leave us to our own devices. He helps us carry the burden of the other person because there are difficult people in this world. Maybe we're one of them. And when we're helping a difficult person, it is so taxing. We think, I can't do this. And the answer is, no, you can't. It's just not possible. And so we have Christ. And his promise is, 
My burden is light. I will carry you as you carry that burden. You know, I will carry you to the end. You can bank on that with certainty. We bear one of those burdens in prayer, especially, mostly. When there's a call for prayer, I encourage you to truly pray. And I also encourage you to pray as though that happened to you. If someone lost a loved one, pray as though you've lost a loved one. If someone is sick and weary of soul, that you would pray as someone who understands that sickness and weariness of soul. Rather than pointing fingers, getting ready to throw your rock, we're always there saying, we're in this together. We need one another. Bearing one another's burdens has a sacrifice. And we've spent a lot of time in Galatians talking about the law of, of the, the law being a burden. And the answer is not, oh, bear the law together. Paul says here, fulfill the law of Christ, meaning Christ has done the work of fulfilling the law. He never places that burden on us. He's done the work of it. We need to trust him. And the trusting comes in the obedience to go and to bear one another's burdens together. Now, this means having difficult people in your life and not just simply cutting them off. It is hard. It is very, very hard. But bearing one another assumes we are actually present in the lives of people. This is why you cannot fulfill this command without the church. You need the church. We need each other, not just to, because we need their help. We actually need to help one another. We need to be bearing burdens for one another because if we don't, they will never truly understand what Christ has done for us. Without presence then, you don't have to bear anything from anyone. But know this, God primarily uses the church to shape you by his spirit and to show you Christ. And I love the way author, Pastor Tim Chester describes it. He says this, God is using the different people the contrasting personalities in your church to change your heart. He's using the difficult people, the annoying people, the sinful people. He's placed you together so you can rub off each other's rough edges. It's as if God has put us like rocks into a bag and is shaking us about so that we collide with one another. Sometimes sparks fly, but gradually we become beautiful, smooth gemstones Remember the next time someone is rubbing you the wrong way that God is smoothing you down. God has given you that person in his love as a gift to make you holy. Can you and I think that way? When there's a difficult person in your life in this church and they are rubbing you the wrong way, they are oftentimes difficult people, annoying people, sinful people but he wants to use that person to cause you to be a beautiful gemstone, to be someone who is like Christ. To be like Christ is not just simply having the characteristics of gentleness and kindness and compassion, the fruit of the spirit. It takes all the hardship of bringing that out. Gentleness comes about because of difficult people that you have to be gentle with. Kindness is because there are annoying people in your life that you have to still show kindness. And until we realize that God has sovereignly, intentionally placed people of all personalities, all experiences, 
and of all sins and sins against you. And he's placed them very specifically to show you this is the way you're going to be like me. You're going to have to live with them and love them and be merciful with them because our God has done that for you and for me. He loved me not when I was good, but while I was still a sinner, Christ died for us. And Jesus loves us in this way. He restores us, makes us whole. Not when we were good and righteous, but when we were rebellious and through a tantrum, when we refused to trust him. Praise God, because he's a merciful God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you for your loving kindness. It is better than life. Thank you for the mercies that you show to us that are new every morning. You are faithful. You never fail us. We were once dead in our transgressions, but we are made alive in Christ. Father, as we come to this table, may we do so with humility. May we remember that you have restored us when we are so far away from you. You are kind to us. You are gentle. With your strong, mighty arm to save, you wrapped us up and you hold us so that we cannot escape you. And you pull us close. You love us with a deep compassion. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the power that that does for us so that we can know you fully. So Lord, help us to be a means of grace to others. And may this communion be a representation of our hearts that we want to follow you all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray.